Hey, everybody, we're doing something really special this week. We are dropping all three episodes all at once. So instead of having a Tuesday survivor story and a Thursday expert or special guest story and then a Sunday roundtable, normally the the Sunday episode is just for patrons, but we're going to drop it out there for free because those roundtable episodes are a lot of fun, very informative, and I think you're going to really enjoy them. So without further ado, here we go. Totally alone, totally on my own, with nothing but whoever was watching me and their voice was coming through that little box. It literally changed my life. I totally believed it. You know, and some people have said, how, how could you have just believed that? I said, you don't understand grooming. If you understood grooming, you would never ask somebody how it's possible. It is so totally possible. <laughs> When you use fear and you use isolation and you're strapped to a bed and you're dependent on somebody else to let you get up and go to the bathroom or have something to eat and you're away from your family and your Camelot life, all of a sudden it is like immediately I was completely and utterly scared to death and it never changed. It never lessened. Hey, everybody, do you have your popcorn and are you sitting in your easy chair? Because I want to talk to you a little bit more about our upcoming podcast. On the show, we are not afraid to talk about the difficult conversations around child abuse and what we can do to make a change and how we can heal so we aren't living a life based in the past from our trauma, but we are thriving in the present. We want everyone to thrive. So we invite real everyday people to share their stories We talk with special guests and experts who can give us insights, tips, and advice. We also release bonus content for our Patreon subscribers in the form of roundtables where we discuss a current topic in the news. We laugh a lot, but we also get into some really deep conversations. This show is not for children, and there may be language to which some are sensitive. You can also find our bleeped episodes on our website, thejambrobergshow.com. This first episode about my own survival story is valuable because I talk about things that I have never had a chance to talk about before. I go in depth about grooming, the mindset of a predator and how they worm their way in to not just the child's life, but to the lives of all the people around the child. All the little chess pieces they have to knock over to get to their victim. And those tactics, those grooming tactics start with building trust. And so we talk about how do they build trust? Well, they figure out what your needs are. They figure out what you believe in. They figure out, you know, where they can have a special relationship with you. They divide and conquer, so to speak. And I get to talk about that in a way that I never really have been able to before because usually there's so many things to talk about in just a short interview that you don't get in depth. So some of this stuff I've never really said before. You know, the great thing about the book is that you get to enter the world of 
all of our family members and their specific psyche and how he manipulated and groomed every member of the family and me. So the book gives you an opportunity to really see the way predators groom entire family systems, entire congregations, entire sports teams, entire school classes. It's really remarkable how psychologically smart, at least in my case and in many cases, groomers are. So if you've never really thought about grooming and the trust that they immediately begin to build individually so that they can eventually attack their prey, so to speak, I wanted to do this podcast episode so that I could tell you from my point of view what the grooming was like for me as a child and how a child's mind will pick up the breadcrumbs that a predator is leaving in their path and pretty soon they'll fill in every blank, every step, all on their own. Some of these things I've never been able to string together and talk about in this way before. Let's go. Well, Jan, Jan Broberg, it's great to have you here and um, an honor and a privilege for me to have the opportunity to sit down and interview you. Many people know maybe the name and maybe have seen your, your documentary. You've agreed here today to, to talk about your story. And I think probably the best way to start is just for me to ask you, what are you able to tell me about your experience? Starting from the middle is often easier for me just because all of the abuse and the icky stuff, as I used to call it, I was able to handle better as I got older. So I think when I went to that drama camp and I was 15 turning 16, so I was in a place of desperation and just trying to know that I could fulfill on this mission that I had been given before my 16th birthday or by the time I was 16 because the amount of fear that I had that something terrible would happen to my family was so intense that being able to be among my peers, people my own age at a, at a theater camp was so um, key to saving my life in so many ways that I always have to talk about the miracle of being there and some of the things that happened at that camp because I loved my I loved my acting and my theater art part almost as much as I loved anything else in my life. And so being able to express feelings through theater was like one of the things that literally saved my life. I could get mad, I could scream, I could be upset. 
I could be sad. I could be in grief. I could be in despair. And it came out very real because it really was, you know. I was experiencing all of those deep and intense fears of losing my family, losing myself, that I would be vaporized. So when I really look back on the experience of that miraculous five weeks at a theater camp, I I always feel like, okay, I really did survive. I really am a thriver. I really have chosen to be happy and to heal the harm and to release it and to let go of it and to forgive it and to reframe it and to reclaim my happy childhood at any age. So that's kind of why I like to start there because I want there to be some feeling of hope left with any listener. Um, For three years, we met this family at church. He was married to a really sweet woman that we all loved. He had five awesome kids that we became best friends with. His three older sons were the same, basically the same age as me and my sister Karen and my younger sister Susan. I was the oldest. I was nine, turning 10 that year. And the first thing I remember was just meeting, you know, this family. Mostly I, I met the boys first. They were in Sunday school class and they were new. And and uh, after church was over, then out in the foyer and out in the parking lot, we were introduced to the whole family. And my memory of, of Robert Birchtold was that he was friendly, big smile, really complimentary, very, you know, funny and nice and just kind of like my own dad, just Madam at church, just normal, you know, just a normal family, but a new family, and they lived really close to us. And so a natural friendship ensued with the kids. You know, we would ride our bikes to the park. We'd go riding our bikes down to Bilo's, where it's a little grocery store. We could buy penny candy. We'd ride our bikes sometimes clear out to the big park, Ross Park. We spent so much time together with... Um, the Hoffmans, who were our other neighbors in the neighborhood, the Birchtolds, um, the Paines. Uh, these were our families of friends. Their children and us were friends. Our parents were friends with their parents. And we literally grew up in like Camelot. Like it felt so safe. You know, we never locked our doors. Our, we had an open door policy at our house. We had a lot of different people because we lived so close to the university. You know, we had professors. um, We had people of all, you know. uh, It was actually a pretty, for Idaho, which is, you know, pretty white, we had friends that were not, you know, that had, we had some different, um, you know, neighbors that were from, I think our right next door neighbors, I think he was Iranian descent. And his wife and two daughters, nicest people. He was a professor at the university at Idaho State University. 
And then our dear friend Carr Hoffman was an economics professor at the university and many other people in the neighborhood that we knew, but, you know, we didn't go to the same church and we didn't necessarily um, have all the same, I don't know, um, views about things, but we all got along. We felt safe. We cut through people's yards and nobody ever yelled at us, you know, and we just bounced around in a way that I think has kind of, maybe maybe in the suburbs there's still that feeling, but it doesn't seem like it's as possible now. Um, there was a lot of carefree, happy, happy childhood days. And for me, I was a people pleaser. I was somebody that literally wanted the adults to include me in the room because I was mature enough to be there. You know, I, I had started doing plays and musicals when Elaine Hoffman, my dear neighbor, my mom's and dad's dear friend, uh, Cor's wife, came to get me and took me to to audition for The Sound of Music. And I got the part of little Gretel and she got the part of Maria, you know, the governess, the mom. And you know, at least two, maybe even three of her children. I think, I think Kathy, John, and Casey, and maybe even Corey, maybe all four of their kids, you know, that were all our friends were in the show. I, I don't remember exactly, but I know, I know for sure. I know for sure John and Kathy were in it. I remember. Um, cause I looked up to, I looked up to them so much. Um, and they were some of the older kids. I just had the most perfect childhood. I had parents that, you know, talked to us, listened to us. We communicated every day around the dinner table. When we'd have dinner, we'd talk. Uh, we generally, you know, had our bedtime story or prayers or both and tickle each other's backs and write our names and learn how to spell and learn cursive on my dad's back, you know, and, and he'd try to guess what you were writing or he'd do that for you, you know, and a lot of times my dad was the one that would put us to bed and and uh, pray with us, my mom too. And we just had like the happiest life. That's why I call it Camelot. And three years into this relationship with this family where we had gone boating together, we had gone on family outings, hundreds of them. Snowmobile. I mean, they had all those things. We didn't. My dad was a florist. It was a modest living. It was fine. We were, never went without anything, but we didn't have a trampoline. They did. We didn't have a boat. We didn't have snowmobiles. We... Um, you know, we're always at the Birchtold's house because they had all those fun things and we were always going on outings or having a family dinner on, you know, the living room floor on a, with a tablecloth spread out on the floor or we were outside playing night games. They had a big backyard and it was kind of like with a hill so you could, there was a walkout basement and then a big hill and a deck and the trampoline and tr totally surrounded by trees and we would play all kinds of night games in the neighborhood and at their house. We had sleepovers. We just had such a blast. And then my happy childhood became a completely different experience when 
Robert Birch told had a client, he said, out in American Falls, he owned a furniture store. And he said, this um, this guy wants me to bring some furniture out or come look at his furniture, something like that. And he has horses, and it was a place we had been to before. I, he, he had already started teaching me and his son, Jerry, um, how to ride horses. And we had gone together a couple of times, and then I had a little job. Uh, summer job working at his furniture store. He would have me come down and I would dust all the furniture and I'd get paid like a dollar an hour or something. And, you know, and then he'd treat me to, you know, whatever the soda pop of the day was. My favorite one was Quench, which I think is a lot like Squirt. <laughs> um, and uh, you'd get your, you know, favorite soda. He'd bring that to you and, and he'd give you your dollar and he'd give you a big compliment about, you know, how wonderful. The job was done so well. And so I had this little summer job that I did when I was, when I was 11 and 12. And then I'd babysit for them sometimes when they needed a babysitter for the little tiny baby girl that they had, you know, so if they were taking the whole family, but they needed to leave little baby, little baby Jill home, then I would babysit and I'd get paid. And they they were just so sweet to me. So wonderful. And so much fun. And then he would take all the kids to school together. He'd stop at the back door and throw open the back door at Broberg's. It's going to be a great day. And all the kids, us three girls, would come running and hop in his car with his boys. He'd take us all to school together. We'd become that close of friends. He was just like a, you know, favorite uncle, second father. Um, he'd take us to all the science fiction movies. Uh, he talked a lot about UFOs and alien uh, aliens because it was super popular in the 70s. This is 19, you know, like 1970, 71, 72, 73. And then uh, I'm turning 12 in 1974. And he invites me to go horseback riding because he has to drive out to American Falls anyway and meet this client. And so then we're going to, you know, spend some time on the ranch and I'll take you horseback riding. My mom said, no, it's a school night. She can't go. And he was like, oh, brother, just let her go. She'll, you know, Jan, she's a straight A student. And no, she has piano. And and my dad, about six months earlier, had started to pull away. He had started to feel like we spend too much time with this family. (laughs) Like, we don't have time for our other relatives, you know, that we were really close to as well. My dad's an identical twin. And so my Uncle Dick and my Aunt Carolyn and my cousins at their house, again, they had four four boys at this time as well, David, Mark, Mike, Scott. And they were our cousins, and we were super close with them, but we were hardly spending any time with them because he was just always having some activity for us to do and always stopping by the house. And my dad had just kind of been like, okay, back off a little bit. We spent, we need some of our own time as a family. And, you know, I think he sensed that, that dad was really backing up. And that's when he must have, maybe he'd been planning this for much longer. I'm sure he had, but he had bought a motorhome and my parents didn't know that. His wife didn't know that. So he picks me up from my piano lesson that day. Even though my dad said, no, she can't go, he still got my mom to say yes because, you know, he had charmed her. He had been fostering a 
you know, relationship with mom, you know, when dad was gone at work and he was picking up the kids for school or he'd get done with work early before dad was home and stop by and bring over a newspaper article about a UFO sighting. And my dad, same thing. Hey, he just his business was just blocks away from my dad's flower shop, his furniture store. And so he would say, let's go to lunch, Bob. Let's go, you know, let's go to Rotary. Let's go to chamber meetings together. And then became really close friends with my dad. My dad considered him his best friend next to his twin brother. And he picks me up from the piano and we go out to go horseback riding. He hands me my allergy pill, which he had made sure I had allergy pills and they were in little capsules. I'll never forget it. Green and yellow capsule. And we've been taking them for a while, vitamins. And it knocked me out. Because I remember being in the car. I remember him picking me up and then getting on the freeway, driving towards American Falls. And then I got so sleepy that I think I laid down on the seat. Sometimes if it was cold enough and the heat was on, I loved to lay by the heater. Like that was my favorite happy place in my home. My parents' bedroom had a heater, you know, that was in the wall, a vent that would really blow the hot air. And I would get my puffy pink, this puffy pink blanket that we had that would like billow up and you'd put it over you and you'd have a stack of books and you'd lay by the heater and read, you know, for hours I would do that. And so sometimes I would get on the floor of the car when I would go somewhere. And this is back before we wore seatbelts. I mean, literally it was like no big deal. So my recollection is literally curling up in a ball and getting on being going down on the floor. He had a big, you know, big, I think he had a Lincoln Continental car. Maybe not. I don't know. It might not have been that. But anyway, I'm totally passed out. I don't remember anything until I groggily, is that a, is that a word? Until I came to because there was this high-pitched, monotone, alien-sounding voice coming through this kind of white speaker-looking box. I mean, tape recorders were just brand new. You know how you'd have a tape recorder, and it didn't look like that. It looked more like a speaker. And I woke up to that sound of that high-pitched, monotone, staccato, alien voice calling me female companion in this high-pitched voice, female companion, kind of this weird, weird, scratchy, ethereal, weird sound. And I realized that I couldn't sit up, that I was on this bed. I couldn't see who was driving. There was a door or a partition. Um, and I, But I could feel I was moving and I was strapped, my wrists and my ankles. I couldn't move. And it's dark. I'm drugged. And this voice is going off in my, in this, you know, torture chamber of fear. And immediately I thought I'd been kidnapped by a UFO. 
And that terror of that moment completely changed the trajectory of the next four years of my life. Because I literally thought that they had been watching me since I was born. I was told by the box, by the alien voice, that I was a very special child, that I'd been saved for a really important purpose, and that I was to have a child to save this their planet, you know, an alien planet, not Earth, but their planet. This didn't all come at once. This wasn't the first time, but when I woke up to that voice and with all of the very careful grooming and laying the seeds, planting the seeds of the science fiction movies that we all went to, that he would take us all to, or him talking about UFO stories in his own family and his wife's family, bringing over newspaper articles you know, with the little black and white disc in the in the picture on the front page, Roswell, you know, UFOs. Um, there was a fascination that really started in the late 50s and just carried over until it was really like, oh my gosh, there's this place where the government is hiding secrets and all of these things. And he wasn't talking directly to me, but I was watching Star Trek on my own. I was watching Lost in Space all on my own with my sisters. It was the lineup on TV, you know, right after Gilligan's Island and I Dream of Jeannie and the Brady Bunch and the Partridge Family and all of our favorite shows. <laughs> Those were just in the mix. And um, without ever necessarily brainwashing me, trying to, it was so scary that that traumatic event of waking up restrained in a strange place, isolated, totally alone, totally on my own, with nothing but whoever was watching me and their voice was coming through that little box, it literally changed my life. I totally believed it. You know, and some people have said, how, how could you have just believed that? I said, you don't understand grooming. If you understood grooming, you would never ask somebody how it's possible. It is so totally possible. <laughs> when you use fear and you use isolation and you're strapped to a bed and you're dependent on somebody else to let you get up and go to the bathroom or have something to eat and you're away from your family and your Camelot life, all of a sudden it is like immediately I was completely and utterly scared to death and it never changed. It never lessened. And that's really what the crux of the rest of the story came through. Like, as this, as this voice kept talking to me, and then eventually it tells me maybe a day or and a half, two days into the, all of this torture, you know, I would go in and out of deep sleep and then I'd be unrestrained and the voice would say, okay, you know, you can go to the bathroom, go find the ice box. You know, there's a box. We've been watching you since you were born. So all your favorite foods are there because we want you to have something to eat. And sure enough, in the little ice box, there was the quench soda. There was the tuna fish sandwiches. There was the almond joy bars, all my favorite things. 
So it all made sense. Of course, they'd been watching me because I was half alien, half human, and I was going to have a child to save their dying planet. I was going to have their savior, so to speak. And when you use enough things that a child is already familiar with, it doesn't sound unbelievable at all. And so the fact that my mother's name is Mary and that my dad, you know, basically this is what is revealed through a series of these, you know, voices. I don't know that they're recordings. I don't know anything except that this voice is coming through this speaker and they, they're watching me. And when they tell you that your dad is like Joseph because Joseph, you know, wasn't the father of Jesus. Joseph was just the caretaker of Jesus. And that was like my dad. He was just a caretaker for me. And my mom's name was Mary, Mary Ann. And now I was this special child that was getting them one step closer to their sa- to the Savior. So apparently I had to have a male child. At least that's what my little brain said. And I had to have that child before the age of 16 or the planet would die. The whole planet. I had a whole world to save on my little 12-year-old shoulders at 75 pounds. You know, besides the fact that I didn't want to be vaporized, you know, that's what they told me, that if I couldn't, if I didn't follow all the rules and do what they said, I'd be vaporized, which I didn't know what it meant. I just knew it meant I wouldn't exist anymore. I wouldn't have a soul. I wouldn't have, you know, what I had always believed in was eternal life, that I'd go on, that my... My soul, my spirit, my energy source would continue and I would get to see my grandparents and my, you know, parents and family and we'd all be together again, you know, and that wouldn't happen. That was super scary for me and that the um, the other threats that came out from them were that my sister Susan was also half alien, half human, and if I couldn't you know, accomplish the mission of having the child to save the dying planet, then Susan would be taken and she would be next. And if I broke any of the rules, then Karen, my my other sister, the middle sister, would go blind. And, you know, looking back now, I can see all of these things where conversations must have happened, you know, with, with Birchtold and my sisters and parents because... Karen always used to say as a kid that she she would rather be deaf than blind because she wanted to be a doctor and she'd have to have really good eyesight to see the little, you know, things inside of the body that she would have to fix. And we would play Operation, that game that was popular. And uh, she'd always win, <laughs> which would make me mad because I was very competitive. Uh, so... Um, you know, he knew, and of course I didn't think it was him, but he knew exactly what threats to make, that my father would be removed, which is how they said it, but I knew that meant he would be killed. Um, I don't remember a specific threat against my mother, but I was terrified that any of those things could happen to any member of my family, as well as carrying the weight of the world and their survival on my shoulders. What I didn't fully understand at that first moment of being terrorized, brainwashed, and isolated, was that the male companion was going to be revealed a few days into this journey, right? So I've had 
all this brainwashing. These tapes have played constantly. I'm being drugged. The drugs are in the food. Every time I would eat something, I would pass out. The next time I'd wake up, I'd be restrained. The voice would be playing, you know, giving me new instructions, talking to me. And then I would be unrestrained at some point, and then I'd go, you know, eat and go to the bathroom and lay back down. And this went on for several days. All right, let's take a little break and hear about one of our sponsors. Hey, everybody, I have the most exciting news, and I am so sincerely grateful to be able to say that the Jan Broberg story uh, is going live. You can purchase the book on Amazon or go to our website, uh, jambrobergfoundation.org, and hear more about it. But my mother and I have worked so hard on bringing this edition of our story to fruition in a fullness in my mother's voice, which is so strong for all the parents out there, for the survivors, the thrivers. Anybody is going to relate to our story and learn something from it that will help you in your life, in your journey with preventing this kind of child abuse. And we are so excited about it. It's so good. And I hope that you will help us by driving this message forward by ordering your book as soon as possible this week, if you can, get on those pre-sales. That really helps us. So jambrobergfoundation.org or directly at Amazon. There's also an audio version, which I voiced, which was very emotional. I had to stop a few times and have a good cry, but it's it's done and it's really exciting to have this full story in our hands, ready to share with the world. And you're the first to know. Please support us. And thank you so much for all the years of support and for caring so much about the message that we are trying to get out to the whole world. Thanks. The first time that I woke up to the voice and I was unrestrained, and it gave me the instruction to go to the front of the motorhome, and there I would meet the male companion. I've been called female companion now for, you know, three days or two days. I don't know. It felt like forever. So the male companion. Okay, so I don't even know what that means exactly, except that he's supposed to be in this with me kind of thing. And so the partition was unlocked. I could move it. And it was slightly ajar. So I got up and I opened the door, slid the door, and I w walked to the front of the motorhome. And there on the bed, or on the, not the bed, the couch, this long, you know, orange colored velvet couch, was Birch told. I called him, by this time, we all called him B. And I, I'm so relieved to see somebody that I know who's like my uncle, my favorite, you know, whatever, second father. He's, he's, I, I hate to give him the title of father because he's, maybe he was a good father to his own kids, but he certainly messed up a lot of other people's lives. And there he was, and I'm shaking him. He looks dead. He's covered in blood. He's passed out. I think he's dead, and I'm shaking him, and I'm trying to revive him. And I'm like, B, B, you got to wake up. You have to wake up. Please wake up, B. Please wake up. And this is somebody that I love. 
as innocently as a child loves any person in their life that is kind and has shown them attention and love and praise and and he woke up came to called me the you know the pet name that he had for me dolly what happened he's asking me what happened he's like oh my gosh and he's covered in blood and he's like looking at all of his wounds and he's like Oh, all I remember is we were going out to the ranch to, to, to go horseback riding, and all of a sudden there was this white light. It was so intense. It was so bright. It was all around the, the car, and I was trying to race away from it, and, and I couldn't get out of I All of a sudden the car's shaking, and, and, it's, and it's going out of control, and I'm trying to race away from this. And, oh, my gosh, what happened? What happened? And he's looking at his bloody hand and his you know arm, and, and he's got blood on his face, and... I'm crying by this point, and I'm like, oh, B, B, we, 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 we are, I don't know, somebody took us, somebody took us, and we are here, we're, we're okay, we're okay, and we're together, we're here, we'll be okay, and I'm, I'm comforting him, this th- 37, 38, 39-year-old, I don't remember how old he was, late 30s, this, this man who's concocted this whole thing to control me and to then sexually assault and rape me for four years of my childhood so we could have the baby to save the dying planet. So that's what gets revealed over the next couple of days is that look at these books, you know, this is what makes people happy. It's okay. I'll I'll be so careful. You know, I love you already, Dolly. I can see us together. You know, he went so far as Mexico, um, crossing the border. I was dressed up like his oldest, like his son, and uh, he had that birth certificate in case they asked. And we got across the border, and then he was taking us farther and farther into Mexico, and we ended up in uh, Mazatlan, Mexico, in a in a you know mobile home park, and all during this traveling and time the aliens would come on the the speaker he would go into a trance i would hear what they had to say i'm listening to their instructions and this is how he literally controlled my every move every bit of me and the whole thing that happens that i know you've talked about um to me about when you fill in all the blanks in order to survive, like your brain will fill in a blank spot so that you can cope with what you're, what you have to do, what you have no choice in doing. And that was like what happened to me. Like instead of filling in like this violent, you know, rape of a grown man on this little tiny prepubescent body, I filled in the blank of, well, I have to do this is to save the dying planet. Well, I have to do this because it's how we're going to have the baby to save the dying planet. Well, I have to, to do whatever, you know, I'm told to do because I want to, I want this to be over. And that's what it was. And then going beyond that, he started to talk to me like I was 
his girlfriend or it was, you know, like we should get married and then everything will be okay because I have this huge moral code that I've grown up with. You know, we follow the Ten Commandments and, you know, you don't you don't have sex outside of marriage and all of those things, even though I barely even knew what sex was and I was completely unable to experience any sort of, you know, sexual pleasure or joy in this. It was all icky. It was all awful. And it was him being able to manipulate my mind enough to go, oh, well, if we were married, then it would be okay at least, at least, you know, in conflict with all the rules that I had grown up with and all the rules that were now being imposed on me by this this mission and this alien. And they were real. They weren't just aliens. They were, they had names. You know, it was Zeta. It was Zethra. It was personal. Like I was doing what I was doing to for them so they wouldn't die, so their planet wouldn't die. So he knew how to personalize everything, and I could comment on it, which is not really what I think we're doing here today. I think it's more about just really telling you my my experience because I, you know, I will make this comment. I know that the majority of children, tweens and teens, who are sexually assaulted— And there's a lot of them. Four out of ten kids are sexually assaulted by someone they they know or are acquainted with, someone they love, someone they trust, or their parents know, love, and trust, or it is a parent or a grandparent or an aunt, uncle, sibling, cousin, somebody. I just know this. All of them have been traumatized in such a way that they are not telling. It is rare that the predator does not handpick their intended target and then go to work to get everybody around that target to trust them. They're so good at it. So I know that I relate to about 75 million people in this country alone who have gone through childhood sexual assault, rape, and abuse, and it wasn't their fault. But man, did this predator know how to make sure that you never tell. My story was elaborate, but they do the same thing, whether it's a reward or a threat or both, to that child. I'm going to hurt your mom. I'm going to skin your mom alive. I've heard all of these from other people, other survivors. And they won't tell because they're protecting their family or their sibling. So many people take the brunt of some abuser in the family because they want to protect their other brothers and sisters from it or they think they are. It's just like... For me, I was in that... I wasn't even a teenager yet because I had not even begun, you know, puberty was didn't happen for me till I was 17. So, I guess he could pick that I was going to stay small and little and and be his perfect, you know, kind of dream fantasy whatever that is um because for 4 years 
after being found by the FBI the first time in Mazatlan, Mexico, after 45, 40, no, five weeks, almost six weeks. I was missing for almost six weeks. So it was about, anyway, it was about 40 days. And um, being found by the FBI and being picked up, that's a whole other trauma in and of itself of having, you know, the federales, they kicked down the door of the motorhome and put me and Birchtold in a car and took us to the prison and put me in a room, a little tiny, you know, about six by six foot um, room on a chair, a single chair in the room. And I had my feet drawn up on the chair with me and my arms around my, my legs because there was a little tiny little hole at the base of the wall and these little mice would run around the (laughs) the edges of the wall and I would watch them come in and out and run around the room and I didn't speak Spanish at the time I do now I'm so happy to say and um, at the time though I was 12 and and an innocent 12 I, I know that some 12 year olds are super wise to the world I was not like I said I lived in Camelot and uh you know, I was listening to the Jackson Five and Donny Osmond and the Osmond Brothers and, you know, ABBA. And I, you know, I was just carefree. And so you can you can do a lot of damage to a person's mind, to a little person's mind, if you isolate them and you, and you give them a source of torture. And for me, it was the alien voice. It was a, such a source of torture. So they picked us up. I went back home. I never told anyone what was happening because I knew they were watching me at all times and all those threats were still in play if I didn't do what I was told, which was to wait and get further instructions and that they would the male companion would be back in my life. And sure enough, several times during the that next year, the speaker showed up in my bedroom and, uh, and then Birchtold showed up. And I always remember he was in his socks. He didn't have shoes on. And the abuse would happen in my very own bedroom, in my own home. And years before, you know, a couple years before he kidnapped me that first time, he had divided our great big bedroom. It was like the whole length of the house, Um, almost, this big, big, gigantic room. And uh, me and my sisters, we, we slept in there and we played together in there. And we read the boxcar children in the great big closets with the sliding doors and the, you know, the little drawer underneath. And we'd hole ourselves up in there and read the boxcar children with a little plate of food that we had, you know, somehow sussed out of the wilderness. <laughs> and and uh, he divided that room. He put up a wall. And we all thought he was, you know, such a nice guy doing service and a handyman and owned a furniture store and got all of our new furniture at wholesale and... And, of course, I'm sure rigged the wall with speaker cable. And, of course, put me in the very, very back corner where there was no other bedroom above that corner of the house. It was an office and two little windows up at the top of the room, but made sure there was a beautiful hanging blue velvet chair that I could crawl up on and be tall enough to get out that bedroom window because the second time that he kidnapped me, I went willingly out the window, and he was tapping on the window. The first time I was like, that he was tapping, I was like, no, 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 not now. My mom, I'm mouthing this. My mom is still awake. Mom is still awake. She's downstairs ironing where she always ironed and watched TV. (laughs) 
And then the second time, I was missing for over three months. And he continued the mission, the abuse, the rape, the but layered it with all kinds of fun activities, which he was always really good at. He would make sure that you went out to really cool places for dinner, or went on a shopping spree, or went down to the beach, or take you to the theater and find you somebody to meet with that he said was a movie producer, and he's going to put me in a movie. And he had all of the right things layered in there with the threats. Of course, he wasn't making threats. He loved my family. It was the aliens. But, you know, the threats are there. The rewards are there. And so the whole thing just continues throughout that whole time. I was, he enrolled me in a, in a boarding school, a Catholic boarding school in Pasadena, California, Flint Ridge Sacred Heart Academy, wonderful school, wonderful nuns. I became a nice Catholic. And I went to Mass every day, and I said the prayers and knew the rosary. And the nuns thought my mother had been killed in Laos. And... All of a sudden, they took really special care of me. And then my father, a CIA agent, would come and get me on the weekends and take me away from the boarding school and continue with the mission. I guess I call it the mission because it's hard to say words like rape and, and molestation and sexual assault. It's hard to say the words. I don't know why. It shouldn't be hard. It happened. <laughs> it's still hard. You know, I've been telling this story for, my son was born when I was 27, and that was the first year that I told a little group of ladies in a book club my story. I didn't have a book. I didn't have a podcast. I didn't have a nine-part series or a documentary or any of those things. I just told my story. They said, yeah, we just like stories, and we've heard you have a really amazing story. And I was like, I don't know if it's amazing. I didn't know. Really, but I came and talked to like twelve ladies in my Florida, in my Florida Orlando uh, church group of ladies that had formed a book club with some of their neighbors and friends, and just told them my story and asked me questions. And after it was done, they said, "Wow, this was so helpful." I'm like, "It was helpful? How? Well, because maybe." You know, there's some of us that have been through something similar, and a couple ladies nodded their heads, and and I was like, oh, that was the first time I was super aware that, you know, maybe this was more common in an uncommon way. My story was uncommon but common, and that's really why I started telling my story, is because from that very first little get-together with some other ladies, they had told me that it helped them, that they would see things differently. They might be able to see something or feel something because I said, well, it seems to me like we talk a lot about stranger danger and we talk a lot about, you know, stuff that certainly doesn't apply to my story. And they were like, we're pretty sure it doesn't apply to most people's story. Their stories are almost always personal. The abuse came from within, not from without. You know, out there, some stranger, some scary, you know, off-the-wall thing happening. And that's why I think I really started and kept talking about it because I realized how common my story is. Maybe it was just crazy enough that it had entertainment value and that's how come it became a series and whatever. But really, I want my story to be known by the person who still 
hasn't told on somebody in their family or in their congregation or their community center or their sports team. I want them to know they're not alone and that if they tell, it will be hard, but it will be worth it. I really feel like it's the reason that I've been able to heal. You can't keep a lethal secret inside and not have it poison you. I just really, I'm just, I really appreciate you asking me to share my story. After that second kidnapping, when I was finally located and brought home again, I was like a robot. I was just like a little robot walking through my house, knowing the mission wasn't complete, knowing that it was going to start up again, knowing that I'd have to see him some more, telling my parents I was in love with him because that's how I could survive by that point. You know, at age 14 and 15, it was all, I want to marry him. Let me marry him, and then everything will be okay. And, of course, they were never going to let me do that. And I was like, you don't understand, you know, because they didn't. They didn't know that their lives were at risk. They didn't know that Susan was going to be taken. They didn't know that an entire planet was going to die. And that's how he did it, by making me, like, Become. I mean, I don't know if that's the ultimate, like, um, Stockholm Syndrome is when you make the person, like, believe that they're in love with you and that they should be with you. I don't know if that's different than having Stockholm Syndrome, but that's what he did to me. And I have a feeling a lot of people are in that situation because I've, I've met so many people along my road that have said, I didn't even really understand that what was happening to me was abuse or not like this doesn't happen to everybody else by their dad or their grandpa. You know, I'd never considered that. So they were brainwashed by their abusers too. Jen, there's so much about your story that brings questions to my mind the, and and our listeners too, I'm sure, about um, that very thing that you're talking about, that control and how it was instigated not only through the grooming in the years leading up to your first abduction, but also the manner in which he made you afraid and you not knowing it was him. Thank you so much for this time that we've had together. And I truly do look forward to, to talking with you more about this and, and getting more into the, the sensory issues and, and how manipulative B was. And I think our listeners need to be educated on some of these things and know it. And also the ones that have had similar type of experiences need to have that connection with you. And so this has been a real privilege, um, not just for me personally, but I think for our, our listeners. So thank you so much. And I do look forward to meeting with you again. Same here. Thanks, Dave. I am, I am excited too. <laughs> Thanks. That's it for today's episode of The Jam Broberg Show. Thank you so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed the show. And if you know anyone who would benefit from hearing our show, it would mean the world to me if you wouldn't mind sharing one of our episodes with them. 
If you believe in what we are doing here on the show and would be interested in becoming a patron, head over to our website at thejambrobergshow.com slash Patreon. It takes a lot to put on a show like this, and your support would be deeply appreciated. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at The Jam Broberg Show and my personal account at Janny Broberg, J-A-N-I-B-R-O-B-E-R-G. And by signing up for our newsletter over at www.thejambrobergfoundation.org. We are doing everything we can to help survivors of child abuse and their families heal and get access to resources so they can all reclaim their happy childhood. All of this can be found in our show notes. Thank you so much, everyone. This is Mama Jan signing off. Over and out on two. Bye-bye.